Hello, and welcome to the Antioch Fort Worth weekly podcast. At Antioch, our desire is to cultivate a passion for Jesus and his purposes on the earth. To connect with us in community, partner with us through giving, or visit on a Sunday morning, please visit AntiochFortWorth.com. Good morning, everybody. Um, hey, before we get started here, I want to uh, give a highlight to something we've been doing recently, the 30-30 Challenge. Uh, it's coming to an end here on Tuesday. We've been doing 30 minutes in the morning with Jesus for 30 days, and we are so encouraged. We've heard so many testimonies coming out of that, and the great news is that you can re-up on Wednesday and just keep going forever. Uh, And so we're so encouraged when we start the day with Jesus, good things happen. And so let's keep pressing in. We're building habits that bear good fruit so that we build more habits that bear good fruit, right? Um, And so that's what we've been doing. It's been really, really fun. We're also in this wonderful series, uh, Walking Inside the Story, where we're looking at the Sermon on the Mount, and we're looking at the ethics of the kingdom of God, the ethics of the family of God together. And it's really, really powerful. And the Sermon on the Mount, is maybe my favorite portion of scripture. And so it's a really great honor to get to preach one of these messages. So we're really going to press in on that. I do want to give you a roadmap. Um, People tell me often that I preach a bit too fast. So here's the roadmap of where we're going and maybe that will will help you here. So uh, here's where we're going today. Uh, We're first of all looking at Matthew 5, 17 through 37. But here's the thing we're talking about. Number one, the authority of Jesus's words. Number two, two important considerations. And number three, we're looking at four transforming initiatives this morning. And and so we're going to look at some of these passages where Jesus says, you've heard it said, but I say to you. And and we're going to look at how those are transforming initiatives, that we are transformed as we lean into those things and we get out of the vicious cycle of sin and find a better way, a Jesus way uh, along that way. So let me pray for us, and then, uh, and then we'll, we'll read the scriptures. So Jesus, we love you this morning. We love to worship you. We love to gaze at you, Jesus, together in the church. We love to see your glory on display in these baptisms, Lord. We love to gather together, and we love to read these scriptures. And so, Lord, would you open our eyes? Would you give us a new way of seeing this morning? Uh, And would you give us a new way of living, of being together in the church? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please uh, stand for the reading of scripture here together. Matthew 5, starting in verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not, I've come not to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches other to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You've heard it said, uh, you have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or a sister, 
you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say, you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. So when you are offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother or sister, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are on the way to court with him, or your accuser may hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you will be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that anyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of unchastity, causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not swear falsely, but carry out the vows that you have made to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let your word be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one. These are the words of our Lord, and we say, amen. Please have a seat. All right, well, we're going to jump into this, um, this passage here, which uh, I might add is uh, perhaps a bit heavy for some of us in the room to hear, um, and I didn't necessarily get an easy passage here, but we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna dig into it, and, and we're going to see what maybe Jesus has to say to us uh, today. So our first um, point here is the authority of Jesus' words. And so we start the passage with Jesus saying, uh, don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. Um, we're going to see throughout this sermon that Jesus' words have authority. This is actually the takeaway, if you go forward at the end of the message um, of the Sermon on the Mount, the people, their takeaway is the authority of Jesus. They walk away saying, wow, we've never heard authority like this. There is authority in the words of Jesus. Jesus' words are actually worthy of basing your whole life on. And that's important for us to see as we get into it. And Jesus also wants us to know that he's not going to abolish the law. And that brings in this theme of the story that we've been looking at all year long. Jesus is within the story. We're not getting away from the story of God. Even as he says, you've heard it said, but I say to you, as he quotes the law and says, but I say to you, Jesus is not abolishing the law. He's not changing the story. He is fulfilling the story. Now, that's important uh, because we know that Jesus is not establishing a new law. This isn't just a second law, a different law for us. He's not speaking in the words of legality. He's talking about a new way of life, a new way of being, 
a new kingdom. He's talking about a new covenantal love that we walk inside. Um, and fulfill still means bring to completion. It still means bring it to completion, but it's a bringing of completion that is out of intention and purpose, not replacing not negating, not saying this wasn't important. No, he's bringing it to its completion, its full clarity um, in the story, okay? And so don't hear these transforming initiatives in a legal framework. This is in the framework of covenantal relationship with the triune God and with the people of God around us. That is how we should hear Jesus' words here. If we turn the Sermon on the Mount into a moral handbook, or a new law, then we're, we're not reading it correctly, and we'll inevitably turn it into an individualistic and legalistic exercise. Some of us have heard the Sermon on the Mount in that way before, um, and, and that's not what Jesus is doing. Um, now, we live in this kingdom, and it's now and not yet, right? And so it, until it is fully consummated, we simply live as ambassadors for the kingdom, not seeking to lay down a new law, not seeking to just be good, Right? To, because to just be good will be defined according to our own personality and society and culture and the time that we live in. We're not, we're not just trying to live a good life, a supposed moral life. Uh, we're trying to be Christ-like. We're trying to walk in the kingdom way. And so the scriptures have authority to reveal Jesus Christ's authority to reveal what, the, what God really is like. That's what Jesus does for us. And so as Jesus speaks this morning to us, uh, don't hear these statements as anti-statements against the law. Um, don't, don't, hear him, uh, don't hear him speaking against the law, but actually fulfilling it and bringing us forward in the story. And in all of this, Jesus finishes this little, uh, this little part. In all of this, Jesus is calling us to a greater righteousness than the Pharisees. And, you know, the word for righteousness in the New Testament, can, is, it's the same word as justice. And so maybe let's try it with that. Uh, Jesus is bringing us to a greater justice than the Pharisees. And that's important for us to hear, uh, because in all of this, what we're trying to do is say, maybe the Pharisees lived out the law to, to a T. Maybe they were the greatest uh, moral conscious of, of the time, but did they participate in God's heart for making everything right? Did they make, did they make things more whole, more just? That is what we're looking for as we look at the, the Sermon on the Mount as a whole, but also these transforming initiatives. And that brings us uh, to, to the second point here, two important considerations. Are we tracking? Are we, are we together? We're together. Okay, so the two important considerations. Here's the first one. I'm trying to give you frameworks to hear the words of Jesus, okay? And the first one is this. The first consideration to have in mind is Jesus's concern for the oppressed. Jesus's perspective from below. We need to hear that as we come into the Sermon on the Mount. Sometimes we all default to just seeing ourselves as the main character in the scriptures, right? Whenever we read something, we just, we kind of see ourselves in the main character, um, but many of us don't realize that today in our time, in our country, in our society, uh, many of us actually have a disadvantage for grasping all that the scriptures are saying. Um, and we should reckon with that. I'm closer in social location to a Roman than a Jew in the first century. And I have to remember that as I, as I hear these words. Con consider the backdrop of the story before we come to these words. The story of Israel, an exiled people. 
The, the backdrop of God's great concern for the poor and the oppressed and the prophets. The context of Jesus' jubilee declaration in Luke 4 in his hometown Nazareth. The fact that Jesus came to rescue humanity like a new exodus out of slavery, but this time a slavery to sin. He's looking to liberate his people. In the context of the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, the blessings for those on the underside, the Beatitudes right? This is the context with which we read these words. And so I consider the Sermon on the Mount to be an important example of Jesus's concern for the marginalized. It should shape our reading, our interpretation of what we read here. I agree with Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I'm going to read a quote here that he wrote in 1942, just a few months before his arrest by the Nazi regime. He said this, it remains an experience of incomparable value that we have for once learned to see the great events of world history from below, from the perspective of the outcasts, the suspects, the maltreated, the powerless, the oppressed, and the reviled. In short, from the perspective of the suffering, that we come to see matters great and small, happiness and misfortune, strength and weakness with new eyes that our sense for greatness, humanness, justice, and mercy has grown clearer, freer, more incorruptible, that we learn indeed that personal suffering is a more useful key, a more fruitful principle than personal happiness for exploring the meaning of the world and contemplation and action. That's really beautiful writing. Dietrich Bonhoeffer really embodied this in his life. Now, I'll also say this, those thoughts were not cultivated as Bonhoeffer studied theology in Germany with some of the greatest minds who ever lived. He didn't discover that while writing his dissertation on the nature of the church or as a pastor in Barcelona. It was during his year in New York City when he attended a historic black church, Abyssinian Baptist Church in Harlem. Bonhoeffer had a radical encounter with the suffering black Christ who identified with the oppressed within a congregation who knew what it meant to be oppressed. He was never the same. And he looked back on that year and said, I was never truly a Christian until that year. He had a, he had a PhD in theology. I was never truly following Jesus until that year. Dr. Reggie Williams, writing about that quote, said this, Access to the perspective from below clarifies the quality of Christian discipleship by revealing that a supposed moral life is not the key to a good Christian life. Christ-likeness is. And that's where we see Jesus calling us, pulling us to see the world from below and see what we might find. And so um, as we read this, don't, just, don't look to define the supposed moral life because that shifts according to time and culture. But let's look for, let's search for Christ-likeness, for a perspective from Jesus himself. Uh, and this morning, may, may that remind us that we are called to follow the crucified Messiah. That's who we follow. That is our king the crucified Messiah. He is the one who sets us free from oppression, captivity, and the cycle of sin. Um, that's our first consideration. Let's go to the second consideration that we have, which is the community of God's people behind the text, okay? 
So this is a massive, but too often invisible dynamic going on in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, uh, You know, many of us, many Westerners, we have a tendency to interpret life through um, a view of individualism. We have a hard time thinking really any other way. I was thinking about this uh, this past week because, you know, I was thinking about how we don't see the world through a communal lens because I read this article in the paper about Starbucks, randomly enough. Uh, and Starbucks apparently is changing their model of how they make their buildings. They're, they're going to drive through only, pick up only locations. And here is what the quotation was in, in, the, in the article. The focus on the convenience model contrasts with a community building third place model that they're famous for. A place to build community, a third place between home and work. That's what they've always done, right? And they're moving to convenience. What a sad but accurate way to describe our culture. <laughs> We're moving out of community into convenience, right? And, and what a sad way to look at the world. What a sad way to read scripture. What can I get out of it in the quickest way possible? Versus, will I let this form me inside the community that I'm planted in, right? We have to think about this as we read. Uh, And I'm so thankful for those who have helped me see beyond individualism. Um, I'm thankful for that. You know, traditional African thought on humanity is existence in relation, persons in community. Does that sound like the Trinity to you, perhaps, right? I think you've heard Jamie say that ballpark 12,000 times. Um, (laughs) Uh, the, 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 late, uh, the late John Mbiti, an Anglican priest from Kenya, he said this, the individual does not and cannot exist alone except corporately. One owes their existence to other people, including those of past generations and one's contemporaries. An individual is simply part of the whole. There is something for us to hear in those words, in that statement. Because here's the thing, we cannot fully grasp being the church unless we grasp that we're not random individuals who happen to be in the same room, who happen to believe the same theology. Rather, we are communal people together in the same cosmic story, interconnected like a body and mutually called to fill the earth with God's glory and to neighbor the whole world. That's who we are. We're not just random individuals who happen to show up at Antioch Fort Worth this morning. No, no, no. We are fundamentally communal people. We're a people together. That's who we are. And in other words, the Sermon on the Mount is not written to individuals. It's written to the church, God's communal people. And as we read the Sermon on the Mount, sometimes we imagine uh, lone wolf scenarios. Like I'm out here by myself trying to live this way. It's, it's about me. It's, it's about my problems, my anger, my experience, my marriage, my lust, my hurt, my truthfulness, my fasting, my giving. And when we do that, that's how we set up this like really high ideals that I can't live out, right? Uh, my situation is different. I'm different. Um, I can't do this. I feel overwhelmed. Um, But when Jesus speaks uh, these words in the Sermon on the Mount, there is this massive backdrop of the global people of God living it out together, supporting each other. Like, you are not alone in this. And that is where the burden just comes off, right? We get to do this together. Um, And so we are meant to be Jesus's body, known as the church, a community of love, walking together. But of course... We don't always live up to that obligation of love, 
right? That doesn't always match up with our experiences. And so this morning, I want us to think about something that I've been chewing on a bit. I want us to think about our call to siblingship in the church, to being siblings. You know, in the New Testament, it's uh, by and large the, the most common word to talk to each other and talk about each other in the church is brothers and sisters. It's really not even close. We're brothers and we're sisters. And uh, last week, Jamie talked about the DNA of God's family, right? The DNA of the kingdom of God. And, and we talked about it a lot in our relationship with God. We get that DNA from God. But what does that DNA mean as we treat each other within the church? Uh, not just vertical, but horizontally. What does that mean for us? Uh, we want to think about the ethics of siblingship today as we read the Sermon on the Mount. How might we live together as brothers and sisters? What does it mean to be siblings in the church? How are brothers treating brothers? And how are sisters treating sisters? How are brothers and sisters treating each other? That's particularly important in our time, our day, because we've seen so many stories of men, Christian male leaders, using power to take advantage of women. And in this church, we say, no more. We will be brothers and sisters together, right? And, and, and the unfortunate outcome of so much of this is that men and women in the church sometimes view each other as dangerous sources of temptation rather than simply saying, this is my sister, this is my brother, what does that look like in the church? We need to consider a healthy vision of siblingship in the church, and that will transform the way that we see each other and the way that we treat each other. Beyond that, how do we transform to see church staff as siblings rather than distant leaders or super Christians or anything that gets in the, in the water here, right? Um, uh, what stories and narratives go against the story of being brothers and sisters together? We have to consider that. And let's walk inside this story together, right? To be the church. So with all of this in mind, the authority of Jesus' words, God's concern for the oppressed, the giant backdrop of the gathered people of God who are siblings, we're going to look at some of the text here in the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to look at the first few uh, transforming initiatives. Now, I'm drawing, uh, like Jamie, on Glenn Stassen's work, uh, Living the Sermon on the Mount, in which he really presents this model of transforming initiatives. Um, and in this, Jesus will present a traditional righteousness, a vicious cycle of sin that we get caught in, and then a way out, a, a transforming initiative. It's not just this, uh, there's that, and now this. It's not just like, oh, we used to talk about external reality, and now it's all inside. Uh, it's not just one and two. It, there's actually three parts to this, um, and that's what we'll look at today. So our first one here, as we get into the four transforming initiatives, we're going to talk about anger. I'm just going to drink water right there. So here's our first transforming initiative, and we're going to go ahead and put up these graphs that Stassen puts together, and, and so if you want to take a picture of it or just look at it, that's great. Um, but here, here's traditional righteousness, you shall not murder, then we get in this vicious cycle. If that's all our righteousness is about, we get in this vicious cycle of simply being angry with our brother, uh, of throwing insults and calling people a fool, and it's, we transform our life into this vicious cycle, a very hellish existence is what Jesus describes it as right here. But then a transforming initiative says, before you even worship, before you go to the altar, go and make things right with that person. And so this is our first transforming initiative, a great example of how the model works. Um, and so we see that the traditional righteousness here uh, is simply leaving it at, uh, you shall not murder. 
But remember that Jesus is not simply creating a new legal command. This is not a second law that he's creating here. He's describing the way of the kingdom of God. So Jesus is is actually diagnosing the sinful cycle of anger right now. He's not just saying, "This this is the legal command, so always do it this way. You only reconcile before you go to the altar. Like, don't think that way. Think this is the way of being, right? Jesus is essentially saying this. You've heard it said, do not murder or you'll be liable to judgment. And I'm saying that I've diagnosed the human tendency toward violence, murder, and accusation. And it's a road that begins with anger. And so be very careful and deal with your anger in a healthy way that, it, that heals it rather than allowing it to grow and bear violent fruit. This is what Jesus is saying to us here. This is a helpful reading because we know that it's impossible to never be angry. Have you ever read this and felt like Jesus said, never be angry again? That's not actually in the text here. That's not what Jesus is saying. Um, And so, um, you know, we all get angry. I can make all of you angry right now if I wanted to. (laughs) It's actually really easy. It's super easy to make each other angry. Um, And so Jesus says, uh, the way to go about this and transform it and heal it is to go and make peace immediately, even before you worship God. That should mean like super urgency. Like, does Jesus think it's important to worship God? Yes. Yes. Before you do that, go make peace. Wow, that's like a super important step here, right? Um, uh, Bonhoeffer, again, in The Cost of Discipleship, said this, When we come before God with hearts full of contempt and unreconciled with our neighbors, we are both individually and as a congregation worshiping an idol. That's some really severe words there, but I think he's got a really good point. So then why does Jesus use this metaphor? I was really interested in why this metaphor of the gift and the altar and the go and all this stuff. Well, think about the first story of violence in the Bible. Cain and Abel. Where did it start? At the altar. And Cain has this anger inside of him towards his brother. But think about this. This probably wasn't the first time. How many times did Cain murder Abel before he actually physically murdered him? How long was he on that road of anger? And Jesus says, no, we will redeem the sins of Cain. And before you even go to the altar, leave your gift, go, be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift to God. So part of the ethics of the kingdom of God is the ethic of redeeming Cain. How, how many times have we found ourselves going down this road, justifying our anger, not realizing where that road actually ends? It's really important for us to think about. Now, I'm really cautious to condone anger of any sort because I know we just have such a limited capacity to contain it. But I, I feel um, a freedom here when Jesus says, you will get angry, but let's heal it and not allow it to grow. That's really important. Okay, let's go to the next one. Are we, are we tracking? Are we together? Yeah. We're together here. Then let's talk about lust. <laughs> it's a setup. <laughs> okay, so here's the next transforming initiative. Uh, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. Uh, but I say, if anyone looking at a woman with lust has already committed adultery. We're on this vicious cycle here. Uh, and so Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. 
I really hope this is obvious that Jesus is not speaking literally here. Uh, we would all be blind. And so uh, Jesus is using hyperbole here to accentuate the seriousness of lust um, and, and that we should do whatever we can to get it out of our life. And at this point, before I move forward, um, desire, I must say desires are not bad. I need to say that. Desire is not bad. God has created you with desire. Desire is actually fundamental to your life and your faith. Uh, God is not so much about clamping down on desire as a whole. God wants to recreate, redesign, reorient those desires to be pointed towards a healthy end, the kingdom of God. Okay? So this is not an anti-desire thing. This is about God wanting to recreate you. Um, and so your sexuality at its core is a desire to know and to be known. That's what's going on in, in sexuality. We often obsess about physical acts of pleasure, but the desire is for intimacy. That's what's going on. But we live in an over-sexualized culture, obviously, and so that gives birth to disordered desires, and then things get worse because it combines with other sins. We have over-sexualization, but we also have consumerism. And we start pointing it away from things to consume and people to consume. That makes it even worse. Then we have our history of colonialism, our historic urge to dominate and own what is not ours. We combine that too. Then we have sexism, uh, nearly ubiquitous across the globe, women being treated as less than. We combine that as well. And what do we have? Uh, really, really uh, messed up, twisted eyes and imagination. And we start letting that be a vehicle for a pornographic gaze rather than a God-given desire to appreciate beauty. That's from God. That's from God. Um, it, it's a longing to know and to be known that gets absolutely twisted in this vicious cycle. So Jesus is not describing simply appreciating beauty. He's talking about the ongoing gaze of consumption, uh, of, of dehumanization, of domination, none of which belong in the kingdom of God. Amen? Amen. And so I just must say here, um, our sisters deserve better. Our brothers deserve better. Our neighbors outside of the church deserve better. This is for a, a complete reworking of our eyes. And at first, it may feel like poking your eye out. That's what Jesus says. At first, you will be so attached to that sinful desire, it feels like gouging your eye out. But Jesus wants to give us a, 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 a gaze of beauty, a gaze of appreciation, a gaze of godly desire to see each other as siblings, the call to siblingship in the church. Stassen, Glenn Stassen says the way out, the only way out is a fundamentally new relationship between men and women. We need a new way of seeing, to see with a redemptive imagination, to use my own terminology. Um, it's really, really important for us. And then he goes, Jesus goes right in here uh, to talking about marriage and divorce. Um, uh, he even just says, it was also said. He's continuing his statement here. But the interesting thing about this uh, part of the, the sermon here is that there's no transforming initiative just in the words. It's not in the text. We really only see a uh, traditional righteousness uh, in the law of Moses. Uh, you would give a certificate of divorce, but then it leads us into this vicious cycle uh, of causing each other to commit adultery. And ultimately what adultery means there is to covenant break. 
to break a covenant. That's what's going on here. So why is there no transforming initiative? There's a, kind of a few different things that we can think about here. Well, the first one would be, um, we're supposed to go back to the previous transform transformative initiative and just do that. Because Jesus says the uh, end result here is adultery, which is what we just talked about uh, in the previous one. And so what is, uh, what is the way out there? Well, um, to uh, tear out our eye and to have a redeemed gaze, right? So maybe perhaps that's something that we, we think about. There's another thing here where we notice all of the transforming initiatives are really interconnected. Like they all apply to each other. So um, look at these different uh, transforming initiatives. Go be reconciled with your accuser. Um, cut off your right eye if it causes you to sin. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Turn your cheek, love your enemy. These are all applicable to a really struggling marriage, right? We can apply all of the transforming initiatives to one another. Uh, Glenn Stassen suggests that Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, 10, and 11 actually shares the revelation of Jesus because he explicitly says, this is not from me, this is from the Lord. And he's talking about marriage and divorce and the transforming initiative there is go and be reconciled to your spouse. So perhaps Paul is speaking in the words of Jesus and giving us a transforming initiative here. But what we do know, that's all conjecture, but here's what we do know. Jesus is focused on reconciliation and peacemaking among his disciple siblings, okay? So that is the thrust of what's going on here. And here's the other thing we know. Uh, if we read this passage and we immediately start to think about, okay, so when is divorce okay? We've gone back into a legalistic reading. Right, that's, it. that's actually exactly what Jesus is resisting here in the Sermon on the Mount, but specifically right here. The culture of the time was to look at the law of Moses and outline the exceptions and look for loopholes. And that is exactly what Jesus is resisting. So in our urge to say, but Jesus, say really clearly, when is it okay, when is it not okay? We forgot, I'm not reading anymore just about a kingdom way of being. I'm reading and trying to get back to a law. And that's what Jesus says, please, please don't do that. Um, it's also important to note that Jesus is not bringing down a hammer on the marginalized. And back then, especially, and still many times now, it is women and children who are the marginalized in the case of divorce. And so Jesus is not bringing a hammer down on the single mother who's asking what went wrong. Hey, let's, just, let's just see that here, that Jesus is, is coming down on the system and the outlook of marriage that failed her because it had no foundation of covenant keeping, of covenant love. And so Jesus is speaking here, caring for the underside, saying, remember that we are a people who keep our covenants, to keep our covenant in the church, to keep our covenant among our siblings. And so notice also that Jesus says, uh, divorcing your wife makes her commit adultery. And so it's also about, uh, do not, you're, it's clear that you have sinned, but do not put your burden of sin on another person. You now bear the weight of that. Imagine the hurt and the harm on the wife, on the children who go through that. Jesus says later in Matthew 18, it's better to die than to cause a child to sin. This is serious stuff for Jesus. And so we have to think about being a people, our ethics being covenant keepers and covenantal love. If we get the marriage covenant wrong, we'll also miss out on the covenantal love of God. And so it's important for us to think about. But please, please hear me this morning. I really must acknowledge that we live in the now and the not yet and very much the not yet. 
when it comes to marriage and divorce. I want to speak to many people in the room who have likely been affected and traumatized by divorce, by uh, marital abuse, manipulation, and broken relationships. You can count me among the masses who have been affected by that. And I, I want to remind us of something just really, really quick. Um, back in verse 20, Jesus said that our righteousness, our justice, it must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And later on in Matthew, in chapter 23, Jesus will describe the Pharisees and scribes, and he describes them as tying up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and laying them on the shoulders of others, but they themselves are unwilling to lift a finger to move them. This is what our justice must not settle for. It must exceed. And so Jesus' words here about divorce are not meant to be a heavy burden that you cannot bear that you cannot carry. And for every word of heavy burden that has been laid upon you or maybe your parents, Jesus offers words of covenantal love, of reconciliation, and of redemption. When your life has simply not turned out like you thought it was going to look, Jesus is not scared to get in the mess with you and redeem every situation that you may find yourself in. And so the voice of accusation or shame or God giving up on you, that comes from the enemy and not from Jesus. And the voice of legal prosecution comes from a wrong reading of what's going on here. And so don't receive a heavy burden this morning, uh, but see a glimpse of Jesus' covenantal love to you. And see that your itty-bitty faith, as we've been saying the last few weeks, combined with God's infinite ocean of faithfulness is enough to redeem you and to redeem everything that's gone on in your life. Amen. And lastly, remember this. This is all set within the community of the people of God. It's supposed to be read in the alternative community called the church, who will love, who will keep covenants, who will be with you when everything has fallen apart, exactly. when you're not sure exactly what to do next. And this passage may be about the ethic of covenant keeping in a marriage, but I'm afraid that we've often failed our covenant to one another when we've seen someone go through these experiences. And so let us be siblings, brothers and sisters who are present when our brother or sister has been abandoned, right? Um, Jesus may not be offering a, a comprehensive framework for divorce, but he's calling us to be a gathered people who keep our covenants together as the church. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's go to our, our, last, um, our last transforming initiative. This is about oaths or truth-telling. And uh, in the Transforming Initiative here, we see that we should not swear falsely, but ultimately we end up in this place where we start swearing on anything at all, anything that we can see. Swear by heaven, swear by the earth, swear by Jerusalem. Uh, and, and Jesus says, stop it. And uh, in verse 37, uh, Jesus simply says, let your yes be yes, let your no be no. This is about truthfulness. And we live in a society where my commitment to truthfulness may only go as far as my profit margin, as my ability to influence you, as what I want you to do at this moment. And so we must really truly reckon with how much our allegiance to truth is affected by what's going on around us by economy and relational loyalty, by the shame of my experiences, by politics, by so many things. Um, think about how the lack of truthfulness marginalizes and oppresses, and we see now why it's important to Jesus. 
But Jesus is explaining here what's going on in this very strange uh, middle part here. Where, where, I don't know about you, but I've never sworn by Jerusalem. Uh, not sure about you guys, but um, uh, what's going on here? Jesus is explaining uh, that we are always in the presence of God. That's the point here. Um, he's talking about swearing by heaven, earth, and Jerusalem, and he focuses on God's presence and relation to each one. And he's saying, wherever you are, God's presence is, therefore, you are always sworn in. Can you imagine how hilarious it would be if God asked you to swear on a Bible every time you prayed? Like, no, 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 do you really mean that? Hold on, wait until you swear in, okay? No, you're sworn in because you're breathing. Everything you say is in the presence of God. And so, and, so, and so let your yes be yes and your no be no. Let's be a truthful people because the presence of God is everywhere. You may not hide from the presence of God. This would truly be a transforming initiative. Think about the trust that would be built, the past that would be redeemed. If our yes was yes and our no was no, the people of God known for integrity, for consistency, and for speaking what is true. Um, this is fundamental to Christian ethics. It's one reason that I love what the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said. He said this, the end is pre-existent in the means. What does that mean? It means it's a critique of the idea that the end justifies the means. That as long as I get where I want it to go, it doesn't matter how I got there. The Sermon on the Mount says it actually matters to get to the kingdom in a kingdom way. To get to justice in a just way. Not to get to justice and peace in an unjust and violent way. And so it means that just ends require just means. This is part of the, the core of, uh, of King's reasoning for nonviolent resistance. He thought that the violence of racism could not be cured by violence. And so therefore he thought that the just means of peacemaking and nonviolence would get us there. So let your yes be yes and your no be no. That our means would, would pursue kingdom ends and kingdom ways. That's what Jesus is calling us to. Amen. That we would be um, living inside the ethics of the family of God. Brothers and sisters together who truth tell, but also who trust each other as we live in integrity, coherency, and consistency. Amen? And so right here, um, as we wrap up, I just want to close here with just a bit of redemptive imagination, um, a shameless plug for my Substack. Um, and so uh, what, if, what if we cultivated uh, a redemptive imagination about anger, of letting it go, when we're on the road of anger, to simply take an exit? to go and be reconciled? What would happen if we would do that? What, what if we had a redemptive imagination for developing sanctified eyes and sanctified minds toward each other and towards those outside of the church as well? What if we had a redemptive imagination of keeping covenants and contending for reconciliation? What if we had a redemptive imagination about walking inside the story with truth and integrity? I think that we would cultivate, as Jesus says, a greater righteousness and justice than the Pharisees. And it truly would be beautiful. And so let it be in this community, these brothers and sisters right here in this church, but also let it be for the sake of the oppressed, the marginalized, and those on the underside. Amen? Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to respond a little bit to what the Lord may be highlighting for you. And so I'm going to ask you guys to stand up and for our worship team to come forward. If you're on ministry team, you can come forward here.
and I <clears throat> don't have a long lead up here into ministry because I simply want to allow you to respond to God where you need to. Uh, there may be a few things here that you can respond to. Maybe a takeaway from the passage. Um, you want prayer support on the journey of transformation. Transformation is really, really hard. And so come, receive prayer. Um, perhaps the call to siblingship is really connecting with you. Come, receive prayer, and let's walk together in that. But maybe there are many other things going on in your life, and you simply need love, support, and prayer. And so please, uh, don't leave here without getting prayer if you need it. <clears throat> so join me as I, as I pray here. Jesus, we love you, and we want to put you first right now. We want to see you. We want new eyes today. We want to be transformed. We want to go on this journey of transforming initiatives in our life, but not just our own individual life, together as the church. We love you, Jesus, and we respond to you right now. Let your Holy Spirit speak right now to every single one of us, and let us meet with you here at the altar. In Jesus' name, amen. Please come receive prayer.